Well, how does God's providence work? And when I say providence, I mean God effecting human history through humanity. Have you thought about that? How does that work? Is God only working in us and through us when we are doing righteous deeds, good things? Or are you only doing the Lord's work when you're sharing the gospel with someone, when you're, when you're helping a widow, when you're giving to missions? Or, or does God also work through, through you when you're sinning? I guess it depends on how righteous you, you think your righteous deeds are, doesn't it? This thing is stuck. Okay. If you believe that you can sometimes act completely good with no sinful motives and, and, and not even a hint of darkness in your soul, then you might begin to think that God's providence only works through your goodness because there is such a thing as your goodness. But the problem is this, none of what you do, none of what you do is done completely righteously, is it? None of what you do is 100% good. Your sinfulness and, and, and my sinfulness always taints our actions, even when we're not aware of it. So, so you might be sharing the gospel with someone, but your motivations might be coming from feelings of guilt, or you've been pressured into it by some works-based gospel, or you're sharing the gospel with a co-ed you want to get closer to so you can date, or maybe you're doing it out of a sense of pride and, and self-righteousness or selfish ambition like the characters that Paul's dealing with in Philippians. If God is only working through you when your motives are 100% pure, then is God not working through you when you're tainted in these ways? Maybe, maybe your giving to missions comes from feelings of cultural or ethnic superiority or the, or, the, or the prideful sense that you're helping God so he owes you something in return or the workspace sense that you're paying him back. So will God not use those funds that you've given to missions for his glory? Will he not use them since they're tainted by your selfishness? Maybe you're helping someone in need but you're doing it to make yourself feel better. Does that mean God can't use you to bring comfort to them? See what I'm getting at? As fallen humans, born in sin, we are, as we sang, sinners through and through, all the way to the core. And yet the Bible teaches that God is still accomplishing his purposes in us and through us, even in our sin. And this is nowhere seen more brightly than at the cross of Christ. Jesus is was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Was it God's good plan that Jesus be crucified on the cross for us? Yes, and amen. It was God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In accordance with the scriptures and with God's eternal plan, the Son of God was killed on the cross for us. So because it was God's plan then, the people who killed him did nothing wrong, right? No. 
The Jewish men who handed Jesus over to be crucified were sinful in what they did. And the Roman men who whipped Jesus and drove the nails and hoisted the cross were also sinning. And yet, God's providence was working through the horrendous sins of those men according to his grace, which he lavished upon us. That's how God's providence works. And you can trace this strange providence from Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden onward all throughout the book of Genesis and into the rest of the story of salvation. We saw a glimpse of this in Genesis when when Ham, Noah's son, sinned, sinned against his father Noah. And then Shem received the blessing from Noah so that the line of promise went through Shem as God had ordained. We saw it when humanity sinfully built the tower in Babel, and then God ordained that they would be scattered across the world, thus setting up the call of Abraham. And then when God called Abraham and promised him protection, Abraham sinned and went down to Egypt in fear, and he pawned off his wife. But through Abraham's sin, the Lord provided for him bountifully. We will see this mysterious working of God all through Genesis, and we especially see it at the end of Genesis when Joseph's Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, and then it is Joseph who ends up, because of his prominent position now in Egypt, because of his enslavement, he ends up preserving his family and providing for them so that God's promise to Abraham would be fulfilled. Joseph puts words to this theme of God's providence through human sinfulness when he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph's brothers were really and truly doing evil. They were sinning in their scheme to destroy their brother, and yet God meant that. He didn't use their sin. He meant their sin for good. How does that work? How does it work so that God ordains these events and yet he remains holy, 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 and at the same time, man is still responsible for his own sin? This theme of God working through human sinfulness really begins to pick up in Genesis from here in Genesis 27 onward, so it's good for us now to begin to think about it. As we see this theme unfold in this morning's passage, our understanding of God's providence working through human sinfulness will begin to take shape. And I don't expect, I do not expect at all that we will completely understand it. Not not just with one sermon this morning. I don't think we'll ever completely understand it. These are the hidden things of God. But my hope, my hope is that God will be magnified in your heart as we ponder these things together. And I also hope that as you grow in your understanding of God's providence, that you will grow less confident in your own ability to avoid sin and more confident in the grace of God shown to you in Christ, the grace that leads you in righteousness, not according to your works, but according to him working in you. So here's what we're going to see in this morning's text. Isaac sins. Esau sins, Rebekah sins, Jacob sins, and yet God's word and his purposes prevail, not in spite of their sins, but through 
their sins. The context of our passage, the, the, the overarching word from God that colors the passage is what God told Rebekah back in Genesis 25, which would be a couple months ago for us. He told her when those babies were fighting in her womb, he said, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. That's the theme, that's the story of Isaac and Rebekah leading into Jacob and Esau. But what we're going to see is that the mysterious way that God fulfills his word, what he, the way that he fulfills what he said would happen, is through these sinful actions of Isaac, Esau, Rebekah, and Jacob. So there are four sinners here and one Savior. Let's start with Esau, because that's where the text opens. Now the text opens up with uh, showing us that Esau is in rebellion against God. He's, he's in rebellion against God's design for marriage and God's calling for Abraham's family. So going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, God created marriage in such a way that one man and one woman would become one flesh. In Genesis chapter 4, after the fall, Cain's descendant Lamech is the first to rebel against this good design. Lamech takes Two wives instead of one. And it's clear as you're reading the narrative of Genesis unfold that this, this establishes a sort of parallel people group. There are the people of God who follow God's design for marriage and his plan for marriage. And then there are the people of the world who follow their own devices. So when Esau, at the very beginning of our text this morning, at the end of chapter 27, when Esau marries two women... He shows that he is like Cain's family, like Lamech. He is of the world. And then when he marries Hittite women to boot, he shows that he prefers the women of the world over the people of God. Or we could say he prefers the offspring of the serpent over the offspring of the promise. And, and what I mean by that is if you trace the story back, if you go backwards in Genesis, back to Noah's curse of Ham and Canaan, you see that Canaanites, and Hittites are Canaanites, they are not people of the promise. They are offspring of the serpent in, in Genesis terms. And, and, and the fact that Esau prefers these ladies over the Hebrew people, the people of the line of promise, well, this is another example of Esau despising his birthright. And to make matters worse, these two wives make life bitter for his parents. We'll see next week in our passage that Rebecca hates her life because of these women. And it is partially this misery that leads Rebecca into this scheme against Esau in this morning's text. In Esau's marital transgressions, we, we, we get a glimpse uh, for, as we're reading this, just a little word of application here. When we see Esau's marital transgressions, we get a glimpse as Christians of why the Bible teaches that Christians are commanded only to marry believers. And it, it, it's not because our parents will be annoyed by our wives or husbands. That's just life. <laughs> right? the, the, reason, though, the reason is because if you are in Christ... You are in the kingdom of light. You've, you've, been, you've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And if you go back and you marry back into the kingdom of darkness, you are like Esau, despising your birthright. It's exactly the way that Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. 
So this is just a little application for us as Christians. But speaking of despising birthrights and the promises and the ways of God, let's not forget what Esau's done up to this point. Let's not forget that Esau has already sold his birthright to Jacob. We saw that in, was that 25, chapter 25? Yeah, the end of chapter 25. That is, kind of sets the tone for the rest of the story. Esau's already gotten rid of his birthright, which is his blessing. He tries to distinguish them later on, but they're the same thing. Even though Jacob took advantage of him, a deal's a deal. So when Isaac invites Esau into this plan to get the blessing at the very beginning of, of chapter 27, Esau should have said, Actually, Dad, Jacob and I have an agreement about this. The blessing belongs to him. He should be a part of this conversation. But Esau doesn't do that, does he? Esau sins by breaking his oath with Jacob and following his father's instructions. And he's doing that so that he can try and covertly get back what he thinks is rightfully his. So Esau sins in violating God's design for marriage. He sins by marrying outside of the covenant family. And he sins by breaking his vow with Jacob to pass on the birthright. And what's interesting is it's Esau's willingness to go along with Isaac's plan that puts Esau out in the field instead of in the tent. And so it is Esau's sin that allows Jacob to come in and get the birthright. All right, so that's Esau. Let's now look at Isaac. Isaac, in my opinion, holds the greatest, and this is just my opinion, he holds the greatest human responsibility for what takes place. He's, after all, the, the, the head of the household, and he's responsible for what happens under his roof. But rather than do what is right and lead his sons who have had this dispute for 60-some-odd years, rather than to do what is right and lead his sons to reconciliation, he, Isaac is, is passive, He's passive, but he's also prideful. Those are not mutually exclusive, are they? Oftentimes, passivity is a result of our pride. Isaac shows sinful pride in that he believes in the power of his own word, his own declarations over against the power of God's word. So back in chapter 25, remember I told you this frames our text. The Lord said that the older child would serve the younger. That is to say, the firstborn doesn't get the birthright. The firstborn will serve the younger, which is Jacob. And here in chapter 27, somewhere close to 70 years later, Isaac believes he can override what God had said then. That's the prideful impulse behind Isaac's little scheme. And you see his passivity in the fact that he goes about this blessing ceremony secretly. The norm... The Old Testament norm for end-of-life blessings is that the patriarch calls all of the sons together and essentially reads the will to them before, before death. As far as we can tell, that's how Abraham blessed Isaac. And, and, and so Isaac knows how this is supposed to work. He knows this is supposed to be a public ceremony. Jacob knows this. Jacob will do this more public blessing tradition at the end of Genesis when he calls all 12 sons together to bless them before he dies. But Isaac doesn't do that. Isaac does it privately. He has set out to, to keep this a secret between him and Esau. And that reveals Isaac's passivity, doesn't it? 
Rather than come out and deal openly with the conflict in the family, rather than seeking wise counsel or even a mediator from outside, Isaac takes the cowardly, passive approach, and he invites Esau into the back room. And by doing this, Isaac's showing. He believes that if he just says it by fiat, then by some sort of Father magic, and by his own will, he can prevail over against what God has already declared. And that is just plain old-fashioned pride. Pride and unbelief. You see what Isaac's doing? Isaac is elevating his estimation of what he can accomplish, and he's minimizing his estimation of what God will accomplish. There's another little lesson that we're meant to see as we observe Isaac's plan here. Isaac is he's either blind or very close to blind uh, in, in this story. At this point in the story, he's old. So he has to rely on his other four senses, doesn't he, in order to get by. And as Jacob comes to him, Isaac touches Jacob, and his sense of touch says, oh, this is Esau. And he smells Jacob, and his sense of smell says, ah, this is Esau. And he tastes the food from Jacob, and his sense of taste says, this is Esau. The only sense that tells Isaac this is not Esau is Isaac's sense of hearing. He says out loud, the voice is Jacob's voice. Did you notice that? The voice is Jacob's voice. You're like, yeah, it is. But Isaac's hearing is his, his only reliable source of information But he ignores it. He ignores his one sense that is reliable and true. In his foolishness and in his pride, he doesn't trust what he can hear. And so he's tricked. And the irony, there's a lot of irony in this chapter. The irony here is that it is through Isaac's hearing that the Lord had commanded who the child of the promise was meant to be. And yet Isaac does not trust his hearing. And because he will not listen, he ends up giving Jacob the blessing exactly as God said it would happen. Do you see? Isn't that interesting? God uses Isaac's sin of closing his ears to God's word in order to accomplish his purposes of giving Jacob the blessing. So let's now look at Rebekah. Now there are debates throughout history as to whether or not Rebekah did anything wrong. And the question goes something like this. Is Rebekah righteous like the Hebrew midwives who lied to the Egyptians and saved the baby boys? Is she like Rahab the prostitute who deceives the men of Jericho in order to protect the Israelites? Is she righteous in in her deception? Or, Or is Rebekah like Sarah who invited Abraham into a ruinous scheme with Hagar? Is she like Eve who gave the forbidden fruit to Adam. And think about it. Like like the Hebrew midwives and and, and Rahab, Rebekah has a just cause, doesn't she? She has a just cause. She's she's heard the word of God. She trusts and believes the word of God. Rebekah knows that it must be Jacob who has received the blessing because that's what God said. And she recognizes that that blessing is being threatened by Isaac's sinful plan with Esau, his secret plan with Esau. So she has a just cause. But on the other hand, there is a clue in the text that colors her more in the tones of Sarah. So so Jacob is minding his own business, 
Rebecca comes to him with her plan of deceit. And look at the language that she uses. Look, what, look at verse 8, if you still have your text open. It's interesting. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Now, we've seen something like this a couple times in Genesis. Adam obeyed the voice of his wife. And God says, because you obeyed the voice of your wife, curses the ground. And then the very next event is the Cain and Abel story. Enmity between brothers, Cain kills Abel, Cain is banished. And then Genesis 16, Sarai offers her illicit scheme to Abram. And in Genesis 16 too says, Abram listened to the voice of his wife and he went into Hagar and she conceived. And the result of that pregnancy and childbirth is what? Trouble between the brothers, Isaac and Ishmael. And Ishmael is banished. And then here, similarly, Rebekah is commanding Jacob to listen to her. Obey my voice. And he does. He listens to her and does what she says. And the end result is what? Trouble between brothers. Esau wants to kill Jacob and Jacob has to flee. That, that little bit of intertextuality here where, where, where the patriarch listens to the voice of the woman tells us that Rebecca just might be in the vein of Eve and Sarai and she's offering guilty counsel. And that at least helps us to see that even though Rebecca has maybe a righteous end in mind, she shares some guilt here. Even though she believes God were, God's word, she could simply trust that the Lord himself will fulfill his word. And the Lord could do that, couldn't he? He could strike down Esau while he's out hunting. He could have wild animals kill him. The Lord could appear to Esau or Isaac, as he's done many times in Genesis already. He's appeared to people, and he could compel them to do the right thing and pass the birthright to Jacob. He could make Isaac mute so that he can't communicate the blessing. If Rebekah truly believes that God's word will come to pass, she could just leave it up to the Lord. But she doesn't, does she? She doesn't leave it to the Lord, and that tells us she might have some other motives here. Something else is going on in her heart besides the desire to see God's word upheld. That the framing of this passage, that Esau's wives made life bitter for Rebekah, shows us that's probably got something to do with her motives. The earlier comment from Genesis 25, 28 also helps us to see Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Remember that? That also shows us Rebekah has her own personal motivation outside of God's word for her. Rebekah, for us, as we read this, Rebekah is a reminder that nothing we do is 100% pure. We cannot escape our own selfish desires on this side of glory. So even if the means, I'm sorry, rather, even if the ends that Rebecca has in mind are righteous ends, the means that she chooses are deceitful. 100% of the plan involves what? Trickery and lying to a blind man who is also her husband. Rebecca did not completely trust in God's ability to fulfill his own word, and, and she assumed well, God needs my help in order to get this done. And the end result is that she does get what she wants. Jacob does get the blessing. 
But because of the lying involved, Rebecca's going to lose the son she loves in the process. The deceitfulness of this scheme enrages Esau so that he vows to kill Jacob, and Jacob is forced to flee eastward. And as far as the text tells us, Rebecca never sees Jacob again. She will die before her son returns. She won't meet her grandkids. She will just be stuck there dealing with the outcome of her deceit. And who knows what this did to their marriage. We won't see or hear from Rebecca again in Genesis after this episode. So let's now move to Jacob. Despite being God's chosen one to receive the blessing, Jacob is a self-interested liar. And he has no moral qualms about this plan of Rebecca's, does he? The only question Jacob ever asks is, like, what if I get caught? Look at verse 11, Genesis 27, 11. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. He's, he's afraid of getting found out. And he's afraid of, of receiving an irreversible curse from his father instead of the blessing. But then look at what Rebecca says to him, and it puts him at ease somehow. His mother said, let your curse be on me, my son, only obey my voice and go bring them to me. And there's that obey my voice again, kind of brackets this story. The fact that Jacob is okay with this, with his own mother taking the punishment for his actions, it just shows you more of his selfishness, doesn't it? And, and, and in his going along with Rebecca's plan, Jacob is going to lie three times. And that number three in the Bible is that number of completeness. God is holy, holy, holy. Jacob is a liar, liar, liar. The first lie is in verse 19 when he goes to his father and says, I am Esau, your firstborn. The second lie is in verse 20 when Isaac asks how he found the game so quickly. And Jacob says, the Lord your God granted me success. That's not just a lie. That's taking God's name in vain, isn't it? On top of the lie. And the third lie is in verse 24 when Isaac asks, Are you really my son Esau? And Jacob, who is all in now, he can't go back now, he lies again and says, I am. And it is immediately following the third lie that Jacob gets what he came for. He receives the blessing from his father. Jacob is a liar and a cheat. Rebecca doubted and schemed. Isaac was passive and prideful. Esau brought this trouble by his ungodly marriages and his willingness to break vows. All of them are at fault, aren't they? All of them sinned. All of them had selfish intentions. All of them are looking to be the rulers of their own fortunes. And all of them will suffer because of what they've done. And yet, through it all, God was working out his good and perfect, perfect predestined plan through their selfishness, their lying, their deceit, their vow breaking, their gluttony. 
God was working through each of their sins, sins that they are personally responsible for. God was working through Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Rebekah and all of their hot mess in order to accomplish his good purposes. There are some clues in the text that show us this. Point forward to God's shining providence. The most, most obvious is that Jacob gets the blessing. Right? So if you were to ask... Do we know that God's will was done? Well, God's will was that Jacob would get the blessing, and Jacob got the blessing. We can't can't overlook that. Regardless of how it happened, it is as God said it would be. The older will serve the younger. The two nations will be divided. That comes to pass through this event. Another area that we see God's providence is in the specifics of the blessing that Isaac gives to Jacob. Blessings that really are in a way from God Himself. So Genesis 27, 28, look at verse 28 with me. Jacob, I'm sorry, Isaac says to Jacob, who he thinks is Esau, May God give you the dew of the heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Now that is a promised land blessing. God promised Abraham, back in, in, in chapter 12, God promised Abraham the land. By God's power, Abraham passed that promise to Isaac, and through God's work here, Isaac passes that promise to Jacob. Then he says to him in verse 29, Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Now that is new. We haven't seen that lording over language in the brothers bowing down language yet. This is a kingly blessing. It was not a part of God's promise to Abraham, and yet it is a development of God's promise to Abraham. It's development of God's blessing to Abraham. More is being revealed here by God's providence about the promised Messiah who is to come. And we're going to see this blessing passed down from Jacob to his son Judah at the end of Genesis, and then on down to David and Solomon, and finally Jesus, the Messiah. And then Jacob gets the blessing that was given to Abraham. This one we've seen before, the blessing of God's protection. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now God is providentially speaking through Isaac to Jacob, and he's giving to him the promises to Abraham and more. And this blessing is what completes it, but it's also the blessing that complicates it for Esau. So Esau comes in and he curses Jacob. Now what? Well, now he can't be blessed because he said curses everyone who curses you. This blessing is why Jacob doesn't have a blessing left for Esau. And this is what will divide the two brothers, so fulfilling what God said, two nations divided. But there's something else I want to see, I want you to see in this passage. Because there is more here than simply moving the Genesis story along. We see a little bit here of the broader story of redemption. There are types and shadows here in this story that show us how it is that we receive salvation. Look again at verses 14 through 17. So he went and took them, and that them there, that's the two goats. Rebekah said, bring me two goats from the flock. So he went and took those two goats and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. 
Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. So, so all right, so we have the undeserving brother wearing the garments of the older brother. Interesting. Now, verse 16, And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands, his nakedness, as it were, she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Again, more of the, his skin, his nakedness. So you have a covering for nakedness, very similar to, to Genesis chapter 3. So it is through the death of the goats that Jacob is going to be able to avoid the curse. Remember, he says, I'm afraid that father is going to curse me. And she says, don't worry about that. I'm going to put these skins on you, the skins of the dead goats. It's through the death of the goats that Jacob's going to avoid the curse and receive the blessing. And then verse 17 And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So someone else is doing the work that will satisfy the father. All right, you starting to see it? Let me me bring you in closer. First of all, all of this takes place where? In the father's tent, which is the, the parallel to the tabernacle later on. Secondly, two goats are killed in order to prepare this meal. That's not necessary. If you can prepare a fine stew with two goats that makes it taste like game, you can prepare a fine stew with one goat, especially if it's just for two people, right? There's a lot of meat on one goat, but Rebecca wants two for her recipe. Why two goats? This is a foreshadowing of the two goats that would be required for the Day of Atonement later on in Leviticus. The blood from one slaughtered goat is brought into the tent because a substitutionary death must occur in order to be in God's presence. Meanwhile, the second goat, the scapegoat, is sent out into the wilderness with the sins of Israel, also known as Jacob, upon it. Okay? So, so that, that old covenant ceremony, that atonement ceremony, will then be fulfilled in Christ, who is the pleasing aroma to the Father, the substitutionary sacrifice which appeases the Father, and the one who carries away our sin. So don't miss those two goats. And you can see more glimmers of that atoning sacrifice in our text. The skins of the goats are on Jacob's arms and neck, and are these skins of the dead animal are what persuade Isaac that Jacob is the elder son and has a right to be in his presence. In other words, something died, right? A sacrifice was made in order that the three times lying son, the sinful son, could be in the presence of the father. He is literally covered. It's covered by the atoning sacrifice in order to appease the father and evade the curse. Notice also that it is the fine garments of the older brother that allow the younger sinful brother to be in the presence of the father. Brothers and sisters, we have been clothed with the righteous garments of our older brother Jesus. The firstborn of the new creation, the one who has the right to the inheritance, has clothed us in his righteousness. And the fact that Rebekah prepared the meal for Jacob is yet another reminder that it is not we who have atoned for our own sins. It's not we who have earned the right to be in the presence of the Father. It is not we who have satisfied the Father, but someone else. Christ himself. But there's more. There's more. When when this great inheritance passes from Esau 
to Jacob by way of the death of the animals and the garments of the older brother and the satisfying meal. What happens to Esau? He is devastated. And as Sarah read that part of the story, you could just, you could just feel the pain and the heartbreak in his voice, couldn't you? Have you but one blessing, my father? This is an old man. This is a 77-year-old man. And he's crying. Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me, also, oh, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. Esau is complaining to Isaac that he's forsaken him. When he, when he asks why the blessing has gone to the younger brother, he's asking, why have you forsaken me? There's that Psalm 22 agony in his voice, isn't there? So through the death of the two goats, through the atoning sacrifice, and through the righteous garments of the older brother, the inheritance has been passed from Esau to Jacob, and that's when Esau cries aloud. This is a shadow of the cross, isn't it? Now Jesus is a better older brother than Esau. He, he willingly gave his life for us out of love and obedience to the Father. But Jesus did cry out like Esau, didn't he? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross of Christ is the moment where we see all of this come to a point. Because it is at the cross where you and I gained an undeserved inheritance. God in his providence has included all of these little details lived out by sinners in this story in Genesis so that we could understand that we are like them. We are liars, we are deceivers, we are sinners. But God has also included in this story all of these details so that we could see even through our sin, he's bringing redemption. And as we see ourselves in, in this very human, very earthy, very sinful family, torn apart just like many of our families are, we see that the inheritance we have been given, we didn't earn it. The blood of a, the atoning sacrifice earned it. The righteous garments of our older brother, uh, older brother earned it for us. So when our Holy Father looks at us now, he doesn't see a liar. He looks at us and he sees Jesus. Just just ponder that for a moment. Do you ever think of yourself as the deceiver who is now somehow in the presence of God? It's because of Christ's work for us. 